0: a real, I guess, existential crisis that I'm experiencing with myself right now. If I was going to write another book right now, the working title would be, I Can't Take It Anymore.
1: We're not looking for the rest of the story. We're not looking for the details. We're simply looking for confirmation of what we already believe. I don't know what language to use. I don't know what words to say to people. Slow down, speak a little bit less and listen a little bit more.
0: Do you think that led to the stress that caused you to have some medical problems and issues, your frustration with all of this? Hey, welcome to Fill in the Blanks today. And listen, you're going to be hearing some different content from me because I am really concerned about what I'm seeing in America right now. Really concerned about what's happening in American society. I've been focused a lot, as you know, on the family, marriage, uh, parenting, all sorts of individual issues, but I'm also very focused on society and what's going on socially. So you're gonna hear me talking about a lot of that going forward, because I feel very passionate about talking about these things and doing something about it and so i'm going to be talking to some different guests about some of those things and today i'm speaking with somebody that shares that with me and somebody that i think has spent his entire career getting his finger on the pulse of what americans really think now, you may not recognize the name when you first hear it, but you will when you see him. I'm talking about Dr. Frank Luntz. Now, he's an American political communications consultant. He's an author. He's a pollster and a pundit, best known for developing talking points and other messaging for Republican causes. He's not still so affiliated, but that's what he's best known for. In both 2012 and 2016 elections, Frank was the only non-journalist, invited to host a debate of GOP presidential contenders. Now, he's president of Frank Luntz & Associates, Frank I. Luntz & Associates, a research and consulting firm, and he has worked for more than 50 Fortune 500 companies and CEOs. Dr. Luntz is currently a professor at NYU Abu Dhabi, and visiting professor at USC. And in 1993, he was named a fellow at Harvard University's Institute of Politics, the second youngest individual ever to receive this honor at that time. He's really famous for something called the Instant Response Focus Group. This was something he pioneered and has been profiled on 60 Minutes, Good Morning America on Election Day, and on PBS award-winning Frontline, you've seen him on The Daily Show, Real Time with Bill Maher, Meet the Press, Nightline, The Today Show, PBS NewsHour, Face the Nation. He was a debate night, election day, an impeachment commentator on Bloomberg, CNBC, BBC in 2020, CBS in 2016, Fox News, MSNBC. I could just go on and on and on. He's co-hosted many live primetime specials and dial sessions during the presidential debates. And he's done 2,500 surveys, focus groups, ad tests, and dial sessions. Now, his resume is long and distinguished. I could go on for an hour just talking about that. But he's best known for his political commentary More media outlets have turned to him to understand what all of us as Americans think. He's a good listener. If you want to know and understand the hopes and fears of Americans, you turn to him more than any other political pollster. Now, over the past years, Frank has visited more than a half a dozen countries on behalf of the U.S. State Department. He's also written three New York Times bestsellers, Words That Work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. What Americans really want, really. And his most recent book, Win, it reached number two on Amazon. So Frank, welcome to fill in the blanks. I'm so glad that I get to speak with you. You and I have been friends for a long time, but sitting down and having this kind of a conversation is something I really value right now because as I said, I'm concerned about what's going on in America right now. I'm concerned about the divisiveness. I'm concerned about what we're doing with young people, particularly in the universities. So I want to pick your brain, because I know you've been picking everybody else's brain. You've been doing this forever, and I'm really wondering what your opinion is of how things have changed, both politically and non-politically in terms of the way people are thinking and interacting right now. I have my own views about that, but I'm curious what yours are because you're talking and, more importantly, listening to people every day. How are things changing out there right now? I surround myself with people who disagree with me, and it's a great
1: joy to have meals with and conversations with people who, quite frankly, think I'm full of it. And I am shocked that today, 2022, we want to be affirmed rather than informed. We want to be confirmed or validated. And the, the challenge to me is that we keep teaching young people pride when we should be teaching humility. There was so much more to learn. There was so much more in in all these various conflicts than we possibly know. And Americans don't want to hear the other story. It's as though we reject Paul Harvey, who most of your listeners won't even know who he is. But we're not looking for the rest of the story. We're not looking for the details. We're simply looking for confirmation of what we already believe. And that, I think, is the greatest threat to democracy. I think it's the greatest threat to the country. And it is something that I don't know how to fix. I don't know what language to use. I don't know what words to say to people. Slow down, ask questions, speak a little bit less and listen a little bit more.
0: Do you think that led to the stress that caused you to have some medical problems and issues, your frustration with all of this? I know that my not speaking up and
1: speaking out against Donald Trump, I'm going to answer every question you have and I'm going to do it in a direct way. I appreciate by the way, As a student of language, you're a nice guy, and you tried to ask me a very gentle question. I'll be more explicit. I had a stroke. My head exploded. And I believe that it did because I saw things that were happening in the country and across the globe, and I knew I should be more vocal about it, but I didn't want the pushback. I didn't want the consequences of it. For my entire life in politics, I attempted to speak truth to power which meant that I would walk into a congressman's office or I'd walk into a CEO's office and I'd say to them that, that speech you just gave was awful or you're not connecting to your employees or you're not communicating effectively to the country. Why are you saying that? Why are you doing that? I, that has never been, I've never been afraid. And with Donald Trump, I was afraid. And all you have to do is go online to see what happens. He claims he can take criticism. No, he can't. He's a child. And you can't criticize a child without them fighting back, without them throwing a tantrum, without them misbehaving. There are things that Donald Trump did as president that are damn good. I know that people on the left will hear that and their minds will explode. But I was afraid to get into that fight. And I think in the end, my head just exploded. Look, I weighed 238 pounds. My blood pressure was 197 over 122 when I finally did have the stroke. And I say to you all listening to me now, just the, the truth will set you free. I didn't come up with that phrase. Someone else did decades ago, but it's true. You tell the truth and you feel better. You tell the truth and you do better. And I don't know whether to call you Phil or Dr. Phil. I want to be respectful to you because you have earned that respect. But... The thing that I've always admired about your public persona is when you challenge people to be authentic in who they are. And the tragedy about America right now is that we punish people when they're authentic. We beat them up if they show any kind of contrition, and we should be rewarding it. This is one of the great differences between us and the Europeans. In Europe, they kick you when you're down. In Europe, if you apologize for something, they beat you up for it. In America, we're the land of second chances, but we've been much less so now, and I regret it. I should have been more vocal. I should have just taken the hits, and I do now. I don't like it, it's not fun. Please understand, when Donald Trump wants to wreck your life, he can can get into it, but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it, doesn't help anyone anywhere. And I just wish I had been more free with and more outspoken about the dangers that were happening in America over the last five years.
0: The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, Essential Television. I'm sitting here listening to you, and I feel like you've been reading my mail because the very things you're saying are a real, I guess, existential crisis that I'm experiencing with myself right now. If I was going to write another book right now, the working title would be, I can't take it anymore because I'm feeling what you were feeling a couple of years ago. I'm watching what's happening in America right now. I'm watching what we're doing in the universities when we are allegedly preparing young people for the real world. And I even say with parents that our job as parents is to prepare our children for the next level of life. We go to universities where there's supposed to be an exchange of ideas and that's no longer happening. A third of students say it's okay to yell down someone that's speaking that you disagree with. I'm watching what's happening and seeing these young people that are traumatized if somebody asks them to Try to resolve cognitive dissonance, try to take the other side's position and articulate it. They go to the dean and say they're traumatized. And I'm watching what we're doing, where confirmation bias has become a religion instead of an affliction. I can't take it anymore. Psychologically, I see the pathology of the society and I feel like I need to do something about it, and I'm not.
1: Okay, well, I got an idea for you, which is you and I together, although we'll be criticized because we're two white men. And by the way, this uh, when I opened your your podcast, I talked about embracing other points of view, embracing people that don't look like me. And I had a student up at Harvard, an African-American woman, tell me that it's because of my white male privilege that I have the ability to listen to these points of view and that she doesn't because she's always under attack and she has to associate and affiliate with other black women because it's the only way that she can make it through life. And she's criticizing me for being so open, suggesting that it's because of some something that my ancestors were able to do. And it's that's just crap. You and I together should bring about 20, 25 of these students together. And I'm, in fact, doing it at my home. This is my home now that you can see behind me. You should come over. It's in two weeks. I've got 20 college Democrats and 20 college Republicans, and I'm going to teach them decency, civility, mutual respect. I'm going to teach them how to disagree without tearing each other apart. And you should join me in that conversation because the only way that we're going to save society, and I think we're too late, but the only chance that we have is for young people to stand up and for them to say, enough already, enough cancel culture enough wokeism, enough of accusations and labeling of people. If if you give up and if I give up, then we will surely, uh, we we will never recover. And the way that I look at it is I'm very pessimistic about my own future. And this is going to sound horrible. And you may not even want listeners to hear it. But I, my friends know I feel this way. I don't think I'm going to be around for that long. And I'm a little bit thankful for that because I think those things that made America so great, the willingness to take the arrows, the willingness to fight for freedom, the willingness to stand up when things were unfair and to try to fix that which is wrong. And boy, there are things that are wrong in this country. But the willingness to make a difference, we're just critics now. And all we do is accuse and we label, And if I'm not long for this world, I don't mind that because I never thought I'd be around to see the decline and fall of the United States of America. And uh, I had this conversation with Mitch McConnell and he tore me apart because he's an optimist. But I know what the American people are saying. I know what the American people are thinking. And all you have to do is is go to a session in LA or San Francisco or New York or Philadelphia or Boston, and people hate each other and they rip into each other and they don't learn from each other. And it is the worst on college campuses. So you and I together should do one of these sessions because I think it'd be great for your your listeners, great for your viewers, and you would really understand how awful college campuses have become today.
0: Well, if that's a genuine invitation, I will be there, and I'll be there 10 times if you want to do it 10 times, but I think all the cities that you named, none of them were in any of the flyover states, and I don't know what Mitch McConnell's ideas are, but I am the incurable optimist about the human spirit, and I'm not as jaundiced about it yet as you are, but I haven't talked to as many people about this as you have. I mean, we survived the Civil War, and we're still here. I believe there's got to be some way to find some unifying principle that people can come together on, and I've seen it. You know, I started doing shows. I'll give you a list of things that were other than just general psychological type things. I've dealt with violence, no bail, defunding the police, failed prosecution, The Great Resignation, shoplifting, and the failure to prosecute, implied bias, white privilege, legalization of marijuana, homelessness, teaching CRT, which is not done, but people think it is, pronouns, transgender, BLM, all of these things. And One of the things that I've seen is I brought in both sides because I wanted to have a debate where people could actually have a chance to tell their side. And invariably, I got comments. I can show you examples of letters from people on. It was almost always the left that said, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for letting us tell our side of the story. But I can't believe you gave those other people a voice. I can't believe you let those crackpots on the stage to talk about what they were talking about. We're right. We have empirical evidence to support it. I said, but wait a minute. You just said we had an intelligent, balanced discussion about this, and they too have empirical data to support their points of view. Well, yeah, I hear you say that, but I can't believe you gave them time on such a huge platform to spew their viewpoint is like my head wanted to explode. So let me give you three examples based on that list of, of
1: information that the public may not realize. I've been focused on education in the inner city now for about a decade. And I teach at Verbum Day and I try to, to participate in their activities. And we're talking to parents from across the country, black and brown parents. We're asking them what matters to you. And my client in this wants to promote equity. They want to communicate the importance of equity. And the parents kept saying to me, it's not equity we want for our kids. It's quality. We will address the racial disparities and discrimination in due time. But our kids can't read. They can't write. They've had two years of crappy education. Give me quality. And I kept pushing equity, equity, equity. And finally, I had two parents say to me, we know you're paying us to participate in this. Keep your money. If you mention equity one more time, we're hanging up. Our child has to be able to read. Our child has to be able to do a budget. Our child needs to live in the real world. There is time for equity right now. You are failing us. So that's number one. Parents, black parents, brown parents, aren't screaming for equity. They want quality. Number two, There is this great desire to take faith out of schools, to take faith out of society. When we stop teaching kids that there was something in life that was greater than them, that was more significant than them, that they can't always be focused on themselves and their own selfish needs or even each other, that there is a greater purpose in life. When the kids lost that view of faith, they lost the respect for each other, they lost the respect for themselves, And it's one of the reasons why it scares me to hell that we are constantly teaching young people to be proud when they've done nothing to be proud of and we're not teaching them humility and decency. And parents embrace that and even the young people I talk to embrace that. Teach humility, not necessarily pride. And third, and this is not about education, but it is about the future. Just how many young people today in the schools believe that their lives are gonna be worse than their parents. We have lost that intergenerational confidence that the future will be better than the present. And when you stop being confident about the future, you stop, you, you, you seek immediate gratification, you seek uh, a, a immediate benefit. And our young people today are so afraid of the future that they are now completely living in the present. And the consequence for that, for us, in the years to follow is horrific. So, and again, do I call you, Doc? I've got to ask you, when people come up to you, I know they call you Dr. Phil. What do I call you? Please tell me, tell every listener when they see you on the street, what do
0: they call you? Everybody calls me Dr. Phil, but you can call me anything you want. Okay, so Dr. Phil. It's it we have to tackle
1: we it's too late for the adults. The adults have already been poisoned. The toxicity of politics on the left and on the right, because I hold both sides are responsible. We can't affect that, but we can affect the kids. And the, the kids in what they are asking from us and what we are failing to give them is so broad right now that I cannot help but be pessimistic. And one last point. And I appreciate the, the opportunity to speak to this is the fact that there aren't enough adults in the lives of these young people, particularly in the inner city. And I just had this conversation before coming on here right now. When Daniel Patrick Moynihan said that there are too many black men exiting their families and there aren't enough men involved in black and brown brown families, he would be a racist he'd be called a racist today. But we see the consequences of this every single day. And I had the, the uh, temerity to bring this up to a group of teachers when I was applauding a black male teacher for being so dedicated to his students and so focused on teaching respect for women, on teaching exactly what Will Smith did not show when he got up and did that slap. And several female teachers said, and they were outraged that I would bring this up. I know that this, by by my addressing this, this risks my own situation right now. We need more black male teachers. I will do anything to get more black male teachers because these boys need men in their lives. They need to be taught how to behave. They need to be taught how to tie a tie. Their moms and in many cases their grandmothers are doing a brilliant, heroic job raising them. But black men in the classroom give them a role model. And the fact that we can't have this conversation now in society, the fact that I could get canceled after this podcast, and I don't want you to edit this, I want this in there, because I'm not, I'm not being afraid anymore. I didn't die. So we need to be willing to speak out.
0: Why do you think you will be criticized so much for saying we need black men in the classroom, we need black and brown role models for these young children? because it happened to me, because
1: I'm on a focus group and I want to air that focus group. I've got a tape of it. I want to put it on TV, but I'm not allowed to do it. And two of these female teachers said, I can't believe you just did that. Not in this day and age. I told the truth and they know I told the truth. But we the way that we now look at it in society is if someone else is rising, by definition, it means that we are falling. And it has never been that way in American society. We always believed that a rising tide lifts all boats. But now it's us versus them. It's men versus women. It's black versus brown versus white. And by the way, I'm going to give you something else because I want this podcast to have things that no one's heard before. I absolutely believe that the big division that's about to happen in society is going to be between the black community and the brown community. Latinos and Hispanics feel left behind. They feel forgotten. They don't feel part of this current conversation. And they, they don't feel that the white community respects them and appreciates them. And they don't feel that the black community represents them or fights for them. It represents 25% of America. And we're going to see that division over the coming weeks and months.
0: Who's going to lead that for the Brown community? Who's going to be the person they rally around in delivering that message? We don't know. I don't know.
1: The Brown community has not been as politically active. They're not as well organized. They're not as public. Many of them came to America through questionable circumstances, and they have never really, their voices have not been heard. They don't have a Black Lives Matter speaking up for them. They don't have a John Lewis or Karen Bass fighting for them. And so they've been silent. But in my f- sessions, in my focus groups, in my travels across the country, they are frustrated. They are angry. They're incredibly hardworking and they are dedicated to the country. They want their kids educated. They want to work. They don't want to collect benefits. And they feel that no one understands them. And this is the year
0: that I think we reach the breaking point. You think that will be something that happens in the streets and in rhetoric, or do you think it'll show up at the polls? I think you're going to see 40% of the
1: Hispanic and Latino community voting Republican, which will be uh, a recent high. And I think you're going to see more Latino candidates. And you notice I go back and forth between Hispanic and Latino, because I'm trying to be respectful to them and the people who created Latinx. You want to know how we don't understand? The progressive community says they're Latinx. It's not Latino or Latina. Let's create this Latinx because then it's gender neutral. And you know what? They dropped it because the Latino community doesn't want that. They don't want what the progressives claim that they want. I do think it shows up in the polls this year. I do think that we will see this summer significant commentary. But what I don't think is you won't see the same Reaction is black lives matter. You won't see people taking to the streets. You won't see the destruction that we saw in so many cities, including Los Angeles, where I happened to be when the, when the riots were happening. Um, but I do think that we have, and I speak up about it whenever I get the chance, because they, you shouldn't have to have violence to get solutions. You shouldn't have to take to the streets to get change that everyone deserves to be heard. Every voice should be respected, and every child matters. And I don't think we're doing that in America right now.
0: One of the things that you have said that I think had such a profound effect, you wrote about it, and you said, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. Is there a big disconnect between what's being said and what's being heard right now? Yes. And so
1: that, that'll be the best question of this entire conversation. And it, it is radically different. And I'll, I'll start with the Latino community. They hear that that too many people believe they're in this country just for the benefits rather than to earn a decent day's living. And, and that, that they've come here to take advantage of America rather than contribute to America. And I know the truth because I work in these communities and I get to know them very well. And I know that there is a hatred of immigrants right now that is undeserved. My grandparents come from Ukraine. My great-grandparents come from Ukraine. My entire lineage is from Odessa and from Kiev, And I look at that conflict and there, but for the grace of God, go I. And so I see these people wanting to come across the border. And all I ask of them is, let's do it legally. We should be a nation of incredibly wide gates, but still a nation of tall fences. So that we welcome people who want to contribute to America, that we welcome people who want a better future in America, because that's what makes us such a strong country without encouraging lawlessness, without encouraging disrespect for, for the rules of the country. And I find that in politics, we don't know how to communicate. We, don't, we, we say what we feel rather than communicating what people need to hear. And it's one of the reasons why we are so divided right now.
0: What are people so afraid of? I've spent most of my Life, actually, since I was 12 years old, focused on why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. I've really tried to figure out what motivates people to choose and act on the things they choose and act on and pass up the things they pass up on and don't do. I've sadly seen that one of the big motivations is fear. And as I look at this divide that we have right now, I don't see people moving towards something positively. I see them moving away from things in fear, but I can't put my finger on it. What are people so afraid of that's causing them to react with such vitriol at this point?
1: So this is what makes you unique, and this is what makes you special, and this is why you became a cultural icon, because you speak truth to these individuals to their face. And when you started doing this, we were still receptive to that truth. We wanted to know the way things really were. If we weren't perfect human beings, and none of us are, we wanted to know how to be better. The fear right now is being wrong. The fear right now is every parent who knows that their kids are in a substandard school, but don't do anything about it. It's every parent who saw their kids actually watching the classroom at home, on Zoom, and realizing that their kids are learning nothing. But since they don't know what to do, they were afraid to address it. They were afraid to accept the consequences. When you started your effort, it was on a one-to-one basis, and everybody watched because they were fascinated. You spoke truth to individual power. And unfortunately, we're now so afraid of getting it wrong. We're so afraid of being challenged. We're so afraid of admitting that there is a better way. I say to myself, and, and by the way, that's why you're a national treasure and that's why you can never retire. And I, I don't mean that, huh. but I, I, I don't mean that as to be nice. I actually mean it for American society. There are two people that have the ability to, actually three, Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey, and you. The three of you cut across every age group. The three of you cut across every every uh, geography. You appeal to people because we trust you and you're the only three right now that we fully trust. Maybe you can add Steven Spielberg into it, but he's not really a public individual. We know who he is, but doesn't speak that much. Everybody else has been marginalized. Everybody else has been demonized and dehumanized. And what they are afraid of and why you must continue Is because we know that there are absolute rights and wrongs, and the problem is we don't communicate it enough. We don't want to acknowledge that there is a right and a wrong way to behave because it means that we're not perfect. And you need to continue to speak truth to power, you need to continue to put that mirror up in front of us and challenge us to be better. Uh, if you stop,
0: then this country stops. Well, the whole point is, at least in my view when I said I can't take it anymore is I'm watching us through endorsement. I mean, this isn't like some sort of insidious sabotage. We are embracing, in my opinion, the sabotage of America. When we are not allowing a healthy exchange of ideas on university campuses. And then we're going to put these young people out to take over the world, and we're preparing them in a way that they're so fragile that when somebody doesn't agree with them, when they get into a free world and it's competitive, it's like back in the old day with the teaching machines, when they had success-only learning, everybody got a hundred. But when they went back to the regular classroom, the first time they got something wrong, they decompensated. They freaked out. They couldn't handle it, so they came unglued. I'm afraid that we're preparing people right now where they expect a success-only journey. They expect only their ideas to be talked about, and the first time they get in a situation where They aren't told what they want to hear. When they are challenged in a legitimate way, what are they going to do? It's past the time they can run to mom or dad. They can go to some authority. I'm not sure how they're going to deal with that. And I think we're cheating them. And I'm not trying to be unkind. I guess I grew up where everybody didn't get a trophy. Either one or you didn't. Everybody didn't get a trophy in a pizza party. You know, you got to, hey, great job for getting out there and competing, but you lost. So you got to work harder.
1: It's too late. The problem is it's too late. We've already introduced half a generation, 10 years, of students that cannot hear the other side without feeling, and I quote, triggered we got 10 well, years now of students who have already cannot handle being challenged and they're having trouble in the workplace. When they say that work-life balance is their number one issue, it's because they want less work and more balance. Uh, we should have addressed this 10 years ago and we didn't. And I don't know how we solve it now. And that is why I am so, so really afraid of the future
0: because well, I I don't think we can fix it. Well, you can't hang it up, man. You can't do that. But I looked at an article the other day, and I'll find it and send it to you unless you already know it, because I haven't seen the actual document. I've requested it through the Public Records Act. But it said that the university system in California had sent out a directive to their faculty of trigger statements that they were not to use. These were statements they were not to use and there were several. Two of them on the list really jumped out at me. One of them was you can no longer say America is the land of opportunity. That that was a trigger statement and you couldn't say it and the other was the best qualified candidate should get the job. I read those and I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody had sent me a meme or something. So I dug down to the article, and it was a serious article. I thought, well, surely somebody there is being punked. So I've requested the actual document from the university to see, but I really believe that that's probably correct. I'm dumbfounded. I'm not saying that there doesn't have to be some adjustments made along the way somewhere, but if we don't have a meritocracy, if we don't have a hierarchy of competency— where are we headed? What are we doing? I'm lost on that. I don't know what to even say about that. So
1: we did research into moms. And I did this when I was starting to teach at NYU Abu Dhabi. And what we found is that Chinese moms want their children. The number one priority for a Chinese mom is to have their kids educated. The number one priority for an American mom is to have their kids happy. So it's working. All the Chinese kids are educated. They are really, they're my favorite. They're my best students. I can't say they're my favorite students. They're my best students. And they work the hardest and they understand the work and they are just dedicated. And all my American students are trying to figure out where they can go out on Friday and Saturday nights. You know what? They're not that happy, but they're not. and, And one of the reasons is because they're not that good. I understand the fear that Americans have towards China. And one of the reasons is education. And the last advantage that we have in this country is our universities, because they're still better than Chinese universities, although the Chinese universities are catching up. But we, we want our kids. We want, I, I go back to the phrase because it's the thing that matters to me so much now is stop trying to affirm And start trying to inform. And we are completely failing at that. That's why I want to do this, these students with you, because let's work with them. Let's let's figure out what are the opposite trigger words. What are the words and phrases that get people to want to cooperate? By the way, compromise is such a bad word right now because and this is the fault of the right even more than the left. The idea is if you hear the word compromise, it means you're selling out. Well, we want other people to compromise with us, not us with them. That we've lost the idea that there are times when both parties can win if they just work together, side by side. So we're developing a lexicon right now that will address conflict resolution. The idea that that things should be meaningful and measurable. Meaningful so they're significant, that you can actually feel it and experience it. Measurable. So I can put numbers behind it to prove that it's the right approach. The strongest attribute that we're looking right now isn't security. It's peace of mind. Security means that there's a dog or a fence or, or something. There's a threat out there and we need that security. Peace of mind means we don't need it. It's not necessary for us. And the one that's probably the most important to me is capitalism. To too many people, capitalism means Wall Street. It means greed. Economic freedom to those people means Main Street, small businesses, that opportunity. So my life is now spent on developing a new lexicon for where we are and how we need to communicate. And and I'm afraid that if if I'm unsuccessful, then then everything's just, we're in trouble.
0: Well, are you finding that there are a lot of people now that are looking for equal opportunity or looking for equal outcome? Because I have had people that have been part of my programs that have said straight up, they think we should have equal outcome. And I was stunned at that. And these were young people, students from our universities here in L.A., Well, you've heard this story before. It
1: used to be 50 years ago that people would see the guy with a house up on the hill and say, I want to be that guy someday. And now when they look at the guy up on the house in the hill, I want to take that guy down and burn down his house. The problem we now have is, and this is twofold. Number one is that we don't respect those who work hard, play by the rules, pay their taxes, get themselves educated pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they are successful. That used to be the American dream that you did all the right things and you could be successful. We don't have enough mentorship right now. We don't have enough um, apprenticeships right now. We don't have enough adults in the lives of enough kids. So I understand the resentment that exists because the truth is not everyone gets access to that American dream. But the other truth is that we still have greater opportunity for more people who start from so far behind to climb up that ladder to success. We offer a greater opportunity for that than any place else. And honestly, Dr. Phil, what I would really love to have is the ability to admit that we have failed, the ability to admit that life is not fair, that there has been and continues to be discrimination. While at the same time, showing the respect for those who do make it, for showing appreciation for those who are willing to work hard and play by the rules. I want us to be the way that we used to be, which is we got issues that need solutions and we got success stories that need respect and celebration. But for some reason, we
0: can't seem to do both
1: at the same time.
0: I'm curious whether people want to win an argument or solve a problem. And to me, those are two very different things. And I'm interested in solving the problem because if I have a loved one go through a windshield, get a head injury, and we go to the hospital, I don't want someone to operate on them that had equal outcome. I want somebody that earned their right to be the head of neurosurgery because they've done 4,000 brain surgeries, because they were number one in their class at medical school, because they worked hard. I don't want them there because they just said, okay, you 10 get to go just because we're just going to have a wholesale moving forward of these people because we're just going to be fair and just pick 10 at random and they're going to be neurosurgeons, I don't want that person operating on my loved one. I want someone that had consequential knowledge and therefore they aspired to that position. And I want other people to look at that aspirationally and say they want to aspire to that position.
1: But what Verbum Day, which is the most amazing Jesuit school, high school in Watts. It's right on the border of Compton. It's in the toughest part of South Central Los Angeles. What I've learned from them is that these young men don't even know the opportunities that are open to them. They don't know the options that they have. And so I do want to give them a leg up. No one explained to them about private equity. They, their goal, their success is to be in charge of a, to be in charge of something. Not realizing that they have the opportunity to be in charge of amazing things. I want to give them that opportunity. I want to teach them about private equity. I want to teach them about investment. I want them to know that uh, hedge funds, that they can do these things. But I also believe, and I'll give you the phrase that we use, do you want to make a statement or do you want to make a difference? And I'm on the side of making a difference as you are.
0: Yeah. When did political correctness really take over logic and making a difference? Because right now I see people that will use a wrong word. They will be seized upon, canceled, whatever the term might be for that given time. It may have been a poor choice of words. It might have been a one-off situation that does not reflect their entire life. Their entire life might be in Category A. This incident of political incorrectness is Category B, and it's a one-off, but it's like, gotcha. So they're seized upon, and the mob mentality takes over, and it's like, okay, we got one. It seems like that's the mentality that a lot of people embrace today. And I think a lot of good people are swept to the side because of that.
1: Well, when television took politics into everybody's home and it became immediate, that was the beginning of cancel culture. And now with social media, which we have not addressed, the fact that negative tweets are so much more likely to be shared than positive ones or negative postings on Facebook are more memorable than positive ones. With television, it meant that a mistake that was committed in Seattle would now be seen in Orlando and Tampa. With social media, it meant that the mistake that was made at 9 a.m. will go around the world by 12 noon. Uh, Unfortunately, technology does not go backward, it goes forward. It has been the greatest democratizer of any aspect of this conversation. And people just simply need to be more careful. But I think that we've lost the ability to forgive. We've lost that goodness in our heart to give people a second and third chance. We've lost empathy. And that is very recent, that's over the last five years. We now make fun of people because they, someone like me who doesn't enunciate as well as I used to, or or people who think more slowly than others, or people who have a more graphic communication. We now, we want to own people in our commentary. And that is over the last five years. Uh, And once again, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. This is not getting any better. It's getting worse. And Dr. Phil, what your show does and what you do is to allow people to improve without killing them. And that's what makes you unique. Because now there are people who are trying to kill Will Smith. No, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna cancel him. All I want from Will Smith is to do some sort of podcast. In fact, you need to do it. I'm gonna give you a good piece of advice for society, not just for you. Get, doc, get Will Smith on this and ask him, what message is he sending his own children? by getting up and slapping Chris Rock for saying something ridiculous about his wife. What message does that send to young men across the country today that you commit a violent act because you didn't like a joke? He needs you, and you through your platform can make a difference for him. I think this has to happen.
0: You know, I spoke about Will Smith on the program, and I had two black lawyers on that had a position about Will Smith and Jesse Smollett, and I actually had some staff members that were saying, well, should an old white guy be talking about this at all? So I went ahead with the show. At the end, the black lawyer said, wow, you took him to task and you showed the steps of this and what he did, but you were amazingly empathetic about what he did and what he should do now. I'm really glad we came on here and talked about this because you condemn the behavior, but not the man. I hope the rest of the world takes that approach. And that's what I mean. I know Will Smith. I don't know him really well, but that was a one-off behavior for him. Does he have an ego? Of course he does. You can't do what he does and not be you know, somewhat narcissistic, somewhat egotistical. You can't do the things that he does and not be out in front of people like that and not have some of those traits and characteristics, but that's not who he is. That's one thing he did one time. If you help him, you're helping millions of young men like it. We
1: can't just look away anymore. So you, you say to me, I can't give up. Or you say to me, I got to continue to do this work. I say to you, because you matter. You touch hearts and minds across the country every single week. You have the credibility that none of us have. If you do this, if you make that difference with him, then you'll, young men are going to die because of what he did. They're going to act out exactly his behavior. His own son says, this is how we do it. If you get him to address this, to talk about it, you will save lives, you will make a difference, and you will help him on his road to recovery.
0: Well, I would certainly sit down and talk to him. I'm afraid he has surrounded himself with people that don't want him to be accountable. You talk about words and the power of language and understand it better than anybody. And there's one word that I looked at in the things that he said, and the word was but. When I hear somebody say but, to me that means forget everything I just said. I'm now going to tell you what I really think. And in his apology he was saying, you know, this this wasn't right, I shouldn't have done that. But Somebody said something about my wife, and, you know, I can only take so much. Well, A, she's not a civilian, but when he says but, that means I kind of apologize, but now I'm going to tell you what I really think, and in his apology to Chris Rock, he said the same thing. I'm sorry, he shouldn't have done that, but, and I always wonder, of course, he didn't write all of that. Somebody wrote it for him, but they put that. Big red flag in the middle of it. And so I wonder if it's still being processed. And I would love to help him process that for real. And I also know that, you know, he's got a lot of trauma in his early life that certainly can come to bear in the moment. But language is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think what he says and does at this point is going to be really important for a lot of young men that watch and admire him. And I got one word for you
1: which is the word reconciliation, which I wish we'd focused on after our own civil war back 170, 180 years ago. Reconstruction means that you are tearing things down to rebuild them. Reconciliation is about coming together. And it's the word and the value that I seek to bring to everything that I do. People know me, if they do, as someone who's right of center. It's not whether we're liberal or conservative or progressive or libertarian. It's that reconciliation to find that good in someone or something that allows us to move forward together. And I think that we're just, we're missing that whole point
0: as a society. You talked about 21 really powerful words and... In there, you use that kind of language, renew, revitalize, rejuvenate, restore, rekindle, reinvent. You put together that litany of words in number 11, but at number one, you had imagine and inspire. You can still imagine and inspire things turning around, right? You haven't completely lost that. You're not that pessimistic, are you? No,
1: but I'm not that far away from it. And I know what I imagine. I imagine great conversations with amazing people where I walk away thinking, when this interview is done, I have to go deal with some medical stuff. And the entire way from here to that appointment, I will be imagining whether I communicated as effectively as I could. I will be regretting the things that I forgot to say. I will be so appreciative of this opportunity and, frankly, of how amazing you are. That, imagine for me, is how to be the best, and this is my lesson to everyone listening. How can you do it better? Imagine life at perfection. How do you get there? If you can't imagine it, you can't do it. And allow yourself to make mistakes. Allow yourself not to be perfect, but learn from it so that the next opportunity you have, you do it better and you have a, a no regrets life. I realize as I'm talking to you that, that I apply your strategies to politics and to business and to sports and to media. And I wish that more people could see that all that they have learned applies to every aspect of their life and that every day they should apologize to one person and every day they should thank one person. Apologize because we're not perfect and thanks because we're grateful for what we have. That's what I imagine. Um, that to me is a, is a decent life. And that's a place to start, right? It's a place to start and a place to end. It, it's, it works both ways. It's like the word shalom. It means hello and it means goodbye. Uh, I, I want to wake up in the morning believing that I'm going to make a meaningful, measurable difference. And I want to go to sleep at night having done that uh, in general and having done that for other people. And these aren't just words. This is how I live my life. yesterday. I want to address the conflict in the Middle East. I want Israelis and Palestinians to find a way to live in peace side by side. I know it's impossible, and I probably shouldn't try to tackle it, but I do, because I can't stand the conflict. I want the left and the right in America to figure out a way to stop tearing each other apart. So I guess I try to do in politics and in global affairs exactly what you do every single day in your life.
0: Well, and you do that, and you're really good at that. You've Visited a number of countries on behalf of the State Department because you have the ability to bring people to the table, to bring people to a point of having a constructive dialogue. You have to keep imagining to inspire people. Honest to tell you, you don't have the right to quit at this point. I'm sorry, but you just don't. We'll talk about that more, but. You can't quit. There's too much to do.
1: Unfortunately, I've got exactly nine minutes left on my computer battery. So even if I say to you (laughs) that I shouldn't quit, and I agree with you, my computer nine minutes from now is going to shut itself down. So my question to you is, do you want me to go and plug it in? Oh, hell yes. (laughs) Okay. Then you're going to have to wait. I'm going to move you. We're going to have a
0: different background. Take your time. Okay, we are saved. I have a question for you. And it's like stomping ants at a picnic. You know, you just can't fix everything. But I wonder how much we could fix if we just stopped rewarding bad behavior. That's probably the most fundamental psychological principle. You go back to Pavlov, Skinner. Just don't reward bad behavior because you reward behavior you want to see reoccur. You don't reward bad behavior you want to extinguish. And it seems to me we are rewarding bad behavior in so many different ways, like paying people to stay home and not work. Are you kidding me? Gee, what's wrong with supply chain? Well, you're paying people not to work. What's wrong with the entertainment and hospitality industry? You're paying people not to work. Are you kidding me? We're rewarding bad behavior. Couldn't we do a lot of good with just some fundamental psychological principles like don't reward bad behavior? Yes, or, or if
1: you don't have something nice to say, don't say it, which your mother told you.
0: That'd dry up the
1: conversation a lot, wouldn't it? Well, but you know what? There are people out there, I'll, I'll name names. On the Republican side, Tim Scott doesn't know how to do negative. The senator from South Carolina, the person who did the State of the Union response to Joe Biden last year, Tim Scott's thinking about running for president. If he runs, there won't be a negative campaign. It'll be a positive, hopeful, soul-based campaign. Or, or uh, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska. This is a guy who's probably the smartest member of the United States Senate. And the guy just doesn't do negative. He's as interested in family as he is in policy. On the Democratic side, Mitch Landrieu the former mayor of New Orleans. The guy cares more about people. He's the most uh, humanistic candidate I've ever met in my life. Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado, who before he was appointed senator, was in charge of education, was in charge of public schools, or or Cory Booker, who ran for president. These are people who, who are political and partisan. But they care about the individual and they care about society and they choose to see the best in people rather than the worst. There are a few people left in politics, but there's so few and far between. And our current president, he made a commitment to be civil. He made a commitment to be a centrist. He made a commitment to act responsibly. And I'll leave it up to your listeners, because I'm not going to do politics here, whether or not he's achieved that. But it can be done we are not that far gone the problem is i don't think anyone will do it that's the problem
0: really because the price is too high
1: because every expert says you have to go negative every expert says you have to destroy your opponent because donald trump doesn't know the positive donald trump only knows how to attack And many of the things that he attacks are legitimate targets. I don't, if you say something nice about Donald Trump, every Democrat stops listening. If you criticize Donald Trump, every one of his supporters stops listening. That's the problem. We, Donald Trump, was good in some ways and bad in others. Joe Biden was good in some ways or has been good in some ways, is not in others. There is goodness in everyone with the exception of, Putin, who I I do believe, I don't understand these people who try to defend him, because I see no goodness in Vladimir Putin. But in these American politicians, there's something good and something bad, and we don't have the ability. I'm going to throw the question back to you. I agree with what you just concluded, that we've been rewarding bad behavior. How do we get people to be willing to accept that the left doesn't have every answer? The right doesn't have every answer, that we would do so much better by picking and choosing rather than just by signing up to tribes and rejecting everything from the tribe that we're not in.
0: People say politics are local, and I disagree. I think politics are personal. I think at some point, they may not want to say it because it would seem selfish, but I think at some point, people sit down and say, what's in this for my family? What's in this for me? whether it's a piece of legislation or it's a candidate, I think people sit down and say, is this going to help me feed my family? Is this going to help me feel safe? Is this going to help me have a future that I can live with at many different levels? I think we've gotten so afraid that we've become sheep. I think people need to get their self-worth and their self-esteem intact. And even if they don't feel comfortable saying it out loud, I think they need to at least have a conversation with themselves about what's really important to them and not allow themselves to be marketed, programmed, and swept along in some kind of a zeitgeist. And I think people have stopped thinking for themselves enough. That's why I say I'm optimistic. I think people can be inspired to do that, inspired to think for themselves. I don't think that's happened enough. And maybe they don't feel like they want to go down to a town hall meeting and stand up and declare this or declare that. But I do think we can encourage people to think for themselves and vote their conscience, even if they don't feel comfortable going public about it. That hasn't happened.
1: There are three skills that are essential to this. The first is learning how to ask questions. We know how to make statements. But how do you ask a question that doesn't automatically bias or determine the result? And it's asking it so you get genuine insight, not just a a simple answer. Uh, Americans don't know how to ask questions anymore. Number two is how do we actually hear what somebody is saying rather than putting it through our own filter? to accept what's coming back to us and process it from their perspective, not just from our perspective. And third is not just to be living in the present, but also to be living in the future, that we tend to react to things as they are impacting us right now, which is not at all how the founding fathers saw this country when they were putting it together. They were making decisions based on what would happen 50 or 100 years from then, rather than what happens to us right now, today, this hour. I think if we learn those three attributes, we'll be a a stronger country and we'll be a better people.
0: Well, let me ask you something. You say ask questions, but I've had people come on who are suspect in criminal cases, and their lawyer says, okay, I'll let them come on, but I want to know what you're going to ask them. And they expect that I'm not going to say okay. But I say, sure, here's a list of the questions. It's not the questions. It's the follow-up questions (laughs) that they need to be concerned about. And what I see when these politicians are getting questioned right now, they've got four pivot points they're going to go to. You can ask them if it's warm outside and they're going to go to one of their pivot points. It's like the interviewers just kind of like, okay, uh, well, we're out of time. So thanks for being here. Why are people not asking follow-up questions and saying, I'm sorry, that's not responsive. This bill does not have anything to do with what it's called. Tell me about this. Nobody's asking, are they not doing their homework? Do they not care? Are they afraid that they'll never get to talk to anybody again? Why is nobody actually asking probative questions of these people so the American public knows what's really going on? So... I'm I'm going to shift halfway over
1: because I think that most good reporters do ask the follow-up. And then the second follow-up question, I'm more afraid of the accusatory questions where they're clearly not listening to the responses, where they simply want to make the politician look bad. And so no matter what answer you give them, even if you answer it fully with details and facts and a strategy for the future and the the suggested impact, well, that's not enough.
0: And that's an accusation, and that's not a dialogue.
1: Right, and that's what I'm much more afraid of in the media, because that's what you get on these cable news programs. I'm always asked, where do I collect my news? And I'll tell you, I get more of it from the Wall Street Journal, because I believe that that covers every aspect, and I trust its accuracy and veracity. I get my TV news from CNBC because they can't afford to be inaccurate because they're giving you business news and you'll lose a fortune if you get it wrong. These, those are the two places where I go to get the facts and get the, and get the actual news rather than perspective. Uh, it, it, it's not there to make me feel good. It's not there to val- validate whatever I believe in. It's there to inform me so I can make the right decisions. And the tragedy is that we don't have enough outlets like that that uh, that are truly dedicated to facts information and perspective
0: yeah and i go with you when you say you move over the, that half if somebody's coming in with an agenda and they're just trying to gotcha with a politician to prove something up or to get that viral moment that's not a dialogue that's not a question but the questions i ask come from two sources. One is, I think I have a natural curiosity where the next question just presents itself. Somebody says something and it's like, well, given that, I want to know this. And the other is, I try to ask the question I really think the viewer wants to know the answer to. The questions write themselves. Like, I want to know about this France t-shirt you've got on. Yes. And the reason
1: why I wore this is because yesterday was the most important French election in a generation. Right. And the president, Macron, was successful, but there's going to be a runoff. And his lead over his uh, opponent, his next most popular opponent, Le Pen, was very narrow. And depending on who gets elected in a couple weeks, it will determine the future, not just of France, but of Europe and potentially of the opposition to Ukraine. And so I wear this shirt because it's particularly relevant to our conversation today. Decisions that you all who are listening to Dr. Phil and myself right now, the decisions that you will make in the primaries that you're facing across the country and the general election in 2022, we don't have to wait to 2024, how you vote will decide the future of this country. And I'm emphasizing that in this t-shirt and I emphasize that in our conversation, that your voice matters, and so does your vote. And when you use your voice and your vote, you can make a difference.
0: I want to add something to that that I think is really important. I think people underestimate the importance of local elections. Judges, all of these local elections have so much impact on the quality of their day-to-day life, and oftentimes they don't get that far down on the ballot. And they vote for a party. So they they may get that
1: far, but they have no idea who's running for office. And those local elections often determine the taxes that you pay. They determine the local parks. They determine the garbage collection. They determine your quality of life more than what anyone in Washington does. So not only should you pay attention because it's your responsibility, you should pay attention because your life is going to be impacted by the people who are responsible right there in your town or your community. Who are going
0: to be the presidential candidates?
1: I think at this point, I don't know if Trump runs. I do believe that if he runs, he's the Republican nominee. I do not believe Joe Biden runs. I think the vice president, I think she absolutely will go for it. But she is such a high negative right now, and I don't see her improving that. I don't see that she really understands why people are so critical of her. Uh, So I think it's really, we don't know now. All that I can tell you, and it breaks my heart, is that as ugly as 2020 was, 2024 is going to be even worse. Really, And that's, uh, it's a bad way to end a podcast, but it's the truth. We have learned how to tear each other down with great precision. We have not learned how to build a country back up again.
0: Yeah, so you're pessimistic about that. Very much so. What's going to happen in Ukraine? Uh, I am very guilty of not being there
1: because I I have relatives who are there. I don't know what I can do. Uh, I've turned my Twitter over to it. So if you're following me on Twitter, that's why there are four or five tweets a day on it because I want you to have the truth about it. I think in the end, they're going to get destroyed. I think that they will actually draw to a neutral in the military because these Ukrainian fighters are fighting for their country. They're fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for the future. And they are remarkable. And my respect, my appreciation and and everything that I have goes out to them. But that Putin has shown how weak his military is, has shown how weak the supply chain is, has shown how wrong their strategy is and that the only way that he can maintain global respect is out of fear. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that more civilians are gonna die and that he's gonna lay the country to waste because if he can't win on the battlefield, he will simply destroy the people. And if he can't earn the public's respect, he will earn their fear. And that's another reason why I'm so afraid of what's happening there. That the only way that he can emerge from this war successful is for everyone to be afraid of him. And that means a lot more killing and a lot more destruction. Do people in Russia support this war? To a great degree, yes, they do. Now, I've questioned the polling in that country because people are afraid to tell the truth. But the individuals who I respect, who who gauge this kind of public opinion, believe that he has somewhere between 75 and 80 percent support for this uh, because because a lot of Russians view Ukraine as part of their country, because from 1917, and you can argue over borders. But the feeling was it was part of the Soviet Union and therefore Ukraine is not its own country. I don't know how to define that. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer to that is. But Putin does have considerable support in his country, not as high as he would like to say that it is, and not the 99 percent of vote for him in the election. But it still is pretty high. But make no mistake, Zelensky has an equal amount of support in the Ukraine for what he has said and done. And my God, is he an awesome hero and a great role model. At a time when the West seems weak and divided, he stands up and says, I don't want to fly it out of here. I'm not looking to get out of Kiev. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to lead this. And, and I cannot wait to meet him because even though I was in Ukraine for, for a few days, and did not get a chance to be in his presence because he is my hero of 2022.
0: Well, he's an amazing leader and has rallied not only Ukraine, but the world. Around him, just by being present, being a strong leader, and talk about a message, he sent the message that we stand. And you know, we're talking in America about should we have citizenship, should we have pride in our nation, and then here's Zelensky living it every day and showing it every day.
1: Well, and and I will give credit to someone who I've had many many public disagreements with which is Bill Maher, the comedian. I I watched his statements that he gives at the end of his show. And he talks about how frivolous America has become, that we get outraged and we're triggered at a time when China is eating our lunch economically, Russia is uh, adventurous militarily, and we're arguing because we feel uh, uh, mistreated by someone in society. Well, you know what? I do think we need to grow up. And I think that I personally need to get a lot tougher because what's the worst thing that's happened to me? So I got sick a little. And so, uh, so people criticize me. And you'll see this in the comments when you release this. You'll get a couple hundred people complain that you had me on. In, in the end, it doesn't matter. If you believe that America's a good country, if you believe that America's a great country, if you believe that our best days are still ahead of us, then we, we know the things that we need to do to succeed. We know who our opponents are. We know who our competitors are. And we know who our enemies are. And it's just a matter of putting our heads down, getting back to work and doing the things that we are so good at doing. So I guess, you know what, after talking to you for an hour, oh, I don't want to give in to you. Maybe I am just a little bit more optimistic now than I was before. I see now I feel like I've sold out. That's going to be my regret, to letting you have an impact on me. But maybe you did just a little.
0: Well, I'll take just a little and I'll keep working on it. How's that? You? You can work on me any day. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. If people want to criticize me having you on, then have at it because I consider you a friend. I consider you a colleague. I admire the work that you have done over the years the instant focus groups, all of the work that you have done in the political arena and outside the political arena, the body of work that you've created, the books that you've written. Powerful, powerful stuff. And I hope we can do this again sooner rather than later. I will plan to be at your house a week from Friday, and we'll talk between now and then to work out the logistics.
1: Well, we're, that's going to be a very memorable. That And that is what I care about the most, not the politics, not the policy. It's the kids, the students, and the next generation. And I'm grateful to know that that's where your priorities lie as well. So well, thank you, Dr. Cer- Phil.
0: It certainly does. I've got grandkids, and I want them to have a world that they can be excited about and look forward to. Frank, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you for taking the time to do this.
1: Thank you, and thank you all for listening.
0: All right, we'll talk soon, and I'll be in touch about a week from Friday. You got it. Cool. Thanks, man. So long.